Good morning. If you have your Bibles, get those open and get them to 2 Timothy chapter 1. If you don't have a Bible, there's a black one in the seat backs in front of you. That's on page 1055. That's where you need to go. And if you can't preach after that worship set and that intro video, then I need to get out of the game, right? So I'm fired up. I hope that you're excited to be here. Uh, Thank each and every one of you for joining us. If you're a guest here this morning, uh, let me extend my personal welcome to you as well. We're so thrilled that you were here today. And uh, there should be some connect cards and the seat backs in front of you. If you, would love, if you would fill that out and turn in on our welcome desk on your way out today, we'd love to give you a gift. And thank you for being here, uh, for being a part of that. Um, but listen, we're excited to, to dive in uh, to the Word of God. So I'm just asking you to join me in a word of prayer as we do that. So let's pray. Father, we are grateful uh, for the opportunity and chance that we have uh, to open your word now. We're thankful that we've already had the chance to, to gather as your church, to enter into a time of, of praise and worship and thanksgiving for who you are, um, for, for, what you, for what you're willing to do in our lives through grace, God, for uh, just the mercy you show to us every single day. And so as we turn our attention to your powerful word, God, that cuts sharper than a two-edged sword that never comes back to you void, uh, we ask that you would just have your way in this time, that you'd have your way in our midst, that, that we would... Um, that we would humbly surrender to you, that you would move through uh, our limitations and our weaknesses, God, that your power would be made perfect in them, and that you would just uh, get the glory from all this. And we pray this all in your, in your powerful uh, son, Jesus' name, amen. All right, if you were here last week, then you know that Brandon started us out in 2 Timothy. And if you were here last year, you know that we spent 11 months going through 1 Timothy. And so I've had a couple of people ask me, um, why 2 Timothy? Right, why, why is it, is it going to hit similar themes? Are we going to be talking about the same things? And, and uh, I, I actually had somebody say to me, you know, uh, they, they, were made, they were joking, but they said, you know, sequels are never as good as the original, right? And I thought, well, Terminator 2 would like to, to have a word with you on that. Uh, the Dark Knight would like to have a word with you on that. And the, the one that lays it, uh, the, the, this argument to rest forever is High School Musical 2, right? I mean... Zach and Vanessa just really found their roles in that one, right? And so, um, as you know, sometimes sequels are better than the original. And um, they're, they're, the reason that we're heading into 2 Timothy is because things are much different in 2 Timothy than they were in 1 Timothy. And so we believe that it's going to be of great benefit to all of us to kind of walk through both letters back to back. And so we told you last year in January, right, that, that 1 Timothy was going to be a letter about serving Christ in the really hard places. Timothy was left in Ephesus. This church was a mess, right? And so he had a really hard job with facing lots of opposition, lots of hurdles to overcome. And so a lot of the encouragement to Timothy in, in 1 Timothy from Paul was, was these ideas of standing firm and preserving and contending for truth and stepping into your leadership and fighting the good fight. Well, here in 2 Timothy, it's the same two main characters. Right? It's still the apostle Paul still writing to Timothy, but this time what's different is Paul is in prison in a Roman dungeon. And as you read through this letter, you, you'll quickly get the sense that he knows. He knows that his life is about to end. He knows he's, about to, he's going to die in a short period of time. He's going to die for Jesus. And church history actually confirms to us that Paul's sense was accurate. That sometime shortly after penning this letter, he is executed. And so of all, of all the letters in the New Testament that Paul wrote, this one is his very last and so I want you to think of it for a second as we, as we launch into this. If you knew that your life was about to end and you sat down to write a letter to your protege, to a, to a young man that you call your son in the faith, there wouldn't be a lot of fluff in there, would there? Because you knew, no, these are the words that you want to be remembered by. 
That's why I love where Brandon started us last week on the, the, the concept of a heritage or legacy of faith because that's what this letter is about. Paul is wanting to ensure that legacy will continue. He's wanting to ensure that Timothy will keep fighting the good fight after Paul is dead and gone. And so what we have in the author of this letter is the oldest Paul that we will ever read. And he's seen people come and he's seen people go. He's seen people stay firm to the end. He's seen people dismiss and deny the faith. He's experienced his own personal, remarkable transformation and salvation in Jesus. He's endured much for the sake of the gospel. He's suffered tremendously for the calling of Christ in his life. And he brings all that into this letter. And as you read it, what you'll get, you'll see, especially early in the letter, you'll see a genuine concern he has for Timothy. And it's a concern that I believe that every single one of you who are parents in here can recognize. It's a concern that every single spiritual leader or mentor can identify with. What Paul is concerned is that in his absence, Timothy might fall back. And once, he's, once Paul is gone, that Timothy might resort. He, he's concerned that, that he might slide back into more comfortable patterns or just kind of a safer existence for his life. And he might actually drift from a life that has lived fully on purpose for God. And as somebody who's lived that life fully on purpose for God and knows his is about to end, this idea is unacceptable to Paul. And so the first letter was about serving Jesus in the hard places. The second letter, the, the general theme is basically this. You've got one life, Timothy, don't waste it. You get one, this one singular opportunity, this one chance, and you can make the most of it by joining the Almighty God in his mission and in his purposes and living out your calling in him, or you can waste it by living for literally anything else other than that. And I can tell you this morning what my greatest fear for myself is, and easily my greatest fear as a parent, and easily my greatest fear as a pastor for all of you is, it is not that your life would be devoid of pursuits or drive or effort. My greatest fear is that we would live a life full of pursuing things that just don't ultimately matter. So I never will encourage you to make the Bible about you. Right? The Bible is God's revelation to us. But as we go through this letter as a church, I wanna, I wanna encourage you at the start to hear and receive the heart of Paul, to hear and receive the heart of God as if, as if it was in some way written to us. Because I want us to start, especially starting with today's passage, to ensure that we aren't wasting this one life we've been given. And so I'm going to invite Roxanne Poe up. She's going to read uh, for you today 2 Timothy chapter 1, verses 6 through 8. And if, if you are physically capable, would you please stand with her for the reading of God's word this morning? Morning, Roxanne. Oh, there we are. Good morning. Okay, so, um, therefore I remind you to rekindle the gift of God that is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God has not given us a spirit of fear, but one of power, love, and sound judgment. So don't be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord or of me, his prisoner. Instead, share in suffering for the gospel, relying on the power of God. Thank you, Roxanne. You guys can have a seat. As always, keep your Bibles open right there to 2 Timothy 1. Any supporting verses we'll throw up on the screens for you, but we want to pack, unpack those three verses for you. For those of you who know uh, the New Testament, none of these stories would be recognition to you. Uh, but in Matthew 19, Jesus crosses paths with somebody that's identified for us in the Bible as only a rich young ruler. That's all we know about him. When Jesus crosses paths with this guy, he immediately recognizes that this man is wasting his life. 
is consumed with the pursuits of wealth and materialism and an outside reputation. In John 21, we find Jesus having breakfast with Peter. And, and Jesus has diagnosed in this breakfast that Peter is on a path. He's, he's, he's entered into a path that will ultimately waste his life. Racked by shame and guilt, Peter has settled and returned to his older way of living. Then in Acts 9, Jesus aggressively introduced himself to someone named Saul. And at this point, Saul has wasted his life. He's been consumed with legalism and religion and tradition. He has tons of zeal, all of it misplaced. And to each one of these people, Jesus gives an invitation. To the rich young ruler, go, sell all you have. Let go of that idol, then come and follow me. To Peter, feed my sheep. Don't don't compare yourself with anyone else. Uh, Feed my lambs and then follow me. To Saul, he says, of, of Saul, this man is my chosen instrument. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. You see, to each, Jesus gives an invitation. Come, follow me. Come, join in my mission. Come, have a life that is no longer wasted. And believe it or not, we have the exact same invitation from God in his word. We quote this verse around here a lot, but it's, it's powerful. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10 to, says that we are his workmanship, that we are created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared ahead of time for us to do. So I want you to get what that verse is saying, that that verse is saying that you have been created in Christ Jesus and that God has uniquely shaped you, uniquely equipped you, uniquely gifted you for good works that he has prepared ahead of time for you to do. There's things that he wants you to do for him that's just for you. You see, the problem is never with God. He makes us in his image, he equips us with gifts and talents and passions. He creates us with good things in mind for us to do, things that he's set up for us to do for him. The issue is always with us. We bring in our sin, we bring in our baggage, we bring in our limitations, and we distract ourselves away from what ultimately matters. And that's what I want us to see. The first truth I want us to see here from 2 Timothy 1 is this, that we all have limitations. At the rich young ruler I mentioned, his limitation was the hold of materialism. For Peter, it was the hold of shame and guilt and regret. For Saul, it was religion and the law. And by the way, that's just scratching the surface for those guys. Because sin is a much bigger problem than we ever give it credit for. Sin literally ruins and destroys everything it touches, including us. And while there's some commonality in the truth this morning that we're all sinners, we can all like feel that together this morning, right, that we're sinners, don't mistake that as good news. It's not good news. Because sin places us under the wrath of a holy God, and if it is not paid for, it condemns us to hell forever. Sin has cursed our creation. It guarantees suffering in this life. Sin curses us in our very nature, which means that this morning I come with all kinds of weaknesses and all kinds of struggles and all kinds of baggage and all kinds of limitations, all of which are going to make my life harder from now until the day I die, and all of which are going to get in the way of me living the life I'm called to in Jesus. We all have these, and we see these in Timothy. Paul rightly calls out three of them here early in the letter. I want you to know, Timothy's not a bad guy. There's a lot, that, 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 there's a lot to admire and a lot to honor about Timothy, but he was a human. He was a sinner. He had limitations. Paul knew what they were, and he calls them out. And the first we find in verse 6, which is this tendency to settle. And he says, therefore, I remind you to rekindle the gift of God that is in you through the laying on of my hands. What's the reminder? To rekindle, to fan into flame. So there's this giftedness that, that Timothy has that he's received from God, and this giftedness, this, this, this equipping, this enabling would be designed to help Timothy not waste his life. It was given to him by God to serve God with. And so it came from the Lord, but apparently when times got tough, 
Or whenever life got really busy or whenever things became challenging or faced opposition, Timothy had this tendency to just kind of settle and coast, to take this giftedness for granted, to not try and improve, to not work at it, to not fan it into flames. And I'm going to tell you, this temptation I found runs really high in churches, where good is accepted as good enough. And as long as something is good, it need not be touched. Let me ask the question, if we're serving the Lord, if we're calling the Bible to give him our first fruits and our best, if we're to honor him, then excellency and increased fruitfulness are things that we should strive for. Good is not the finish line. Timothy would never experience the fullness of God's calling or what God could do through him if he continued to settle for just good enough. So he's reminded to fan into flame this giftedness. Second, we see is just this, this, this spirit of timidity about him. Look at verse seven. For God has not given us a spirit of fear, but one of power and love and sound judgment. If you were here last year, do you remember how many times Paul encouraged Timothy in 1 Timothy? The encouragements were, Timothy, step into leadership, to not let others look down on him, to step into his God-given authority, to contend for truth, to this encouragement after encouragement, to fight the good fight, keep going at it. Because in his own strength, based on his own sort of personality profile, Timothy had a, a tendency to shrink back from conflict. Right? And many of us can recognize with this, can't we? He might have chosen calm waters over contending for truth. He might have taken him a back seat when God called him to be an example and lead out. He might not have a hard conversation that was needed because it would be uncomfortable. So Paul rightly recognizes this as a limitation, as a personality weakness, that if it is not conquered or at least managed, would actually hold Timothy and his service to the Lord back and increase the chances that there would be more areas of his life that would be wasted. The third we see in verse eight, which is just shame, right? When Paul says, don't be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, or of me, his prisoner. Now, none of us in here know Timothy personally, obviously. So we don't know what the source of this shame was. It could have been that he had a tendency to be fearful of sharing the gospel with non-believers. Maybe it was, it was fear that his story would end up like Paul's. I mean, think about it. This guy has poured into you, invested in you. You've tried to mimic his life, and now you watch him rot out his final days in a jail cell before he gets executed. And you're like, is that going to be my story? Maybe it was a hesitancy to suffer. Maybe it was a hesitancy to, to take on costs. Whatever the origin, Paul says, no, Timothy, do not be ashamed. Don't be ashamed of Jesus. Don't be ashamed of the gospel. Don't be ashamed of this calling that we've received. Don't be ashamed of me or what's happening to me. The shame, this fear, this embarrassment, whatever word you want to put on it would need to be overcame. Or again, this would be a great limitation to living the life that God has called Timothy to. And here's the point. We all have these. Right? Maybe yours are the opposite of Timothy. Maybe you don't identify with Timothy's limitations at all, but you've got your own. I identify way too closely with some of Timothy's. But most people are honest with themselves. You know what your weaknesses are. You know what your limitations are. They exist and they are real, and it's something that you're going to face for your entire life. But they cannot be treated as unmanageable or as unconquerable. Instead, our limitations need to become invitations. Here's how Paul puts it in 2 Corinthians 4. He says, we have this treasure in clay jars, so this extraordinary power may be from God and not from us. Now, I want to break down this verse for you a little bit. When he talks about this treasure, if you read 2 Corinthians 4 in context, what he's talking about is the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
It's the good news that, that, that Christians have been given to share with the world, this mission that, that Paul is called to, to go and plant churches and spread the good news of Jesus. That hope, that calling, that truth is this treasure that Paul has, and yet he carries it around in what he describes as a clay jar, which is very fragile. The clay jars were Paul and his coworkers and all their limitations and all their weaknesses and all their sins. And so what they have is this immensely valuable treasure in these fragile jars. Why is it that God has always called limited, broken, fragile people to serve him in this one life? Why use us of all things? Well, we're answered so that this extraordinary power may be from God and not from us. The reason why God gives us this life and then calls us to a mission that is beyond our capabilities is precisely because we can't do it. Because, let's be honest, we know ourselves. If we were able to do it without him, we would do it without him. John 15, I am the vine, you are the branches, Jesus says. The one who remains in me and I in him produces much fruit because you can do what without me? You can do nothing apart from me. We have been created to connect with and need God. We, we, we cannot experience salvation. We cannot experience what he has called us to do without him. And this is not a bad thing, by the way. It brings us the fullest of life when we have intimacy with our creator. And it also means that our limitations no longer have to be deal breakers. There's a baseball phrase I want you guys to think about this morning. And the baseball phrase is simply, it's, it's hitting the curve. Right? And the concept behind this is that uh, there, there are several rungs of minor leagues before you get to major league baseball. And, and in those minor leagues, it's, it's, everybody in there is a talented baseball player. And everybody in there, I guarantee you, can hit a fastball. Because a fastball, even though it gets all, all the hype because it's thrown harder than ever the pitch, it has very little movement. It's a pretty straight pitch. And almost everybody in the minor leagues can hit a fastball. But what happens is they go to batting practice. They hit home run after home run after home run after, on all these fastballs. And then they get in the game and somebody throws them a curveball and they strike out. Because the curveball looks like a fastball to about, to about, to about three-quarters of the way there and then it dives down. And what happens is year after year after year, people retire and phase out of the game, never making it to the major leagues because they never learn how to hit a curve. We all have curveballs that we struggle to hit. It might be a personality weakness you have. It might be a skill that we can't master. It might be timidity. It might be fear. It might be shame. It might be worry. It might be distractions. It might be disabilities. It might be more, right? And guess what? Our enemy knows this about us. And so he's going to keep putting us in positions where if we don't learn how to overcome these, we're going to keep striking out and we're going to be stuck. But this is one of the greatest invitations of the Bible, that we don't need to overcome our limitations. We don't need to learn how to hit a curveball on our own. In fact, we're commanded not to. Instead, we invite the Lord into these things. Timothy's default was timidity. His default was to cower away, but he also had the Holy Spirit. And look what Paul says. The Holy Spirit in you, Timothy, is not a spirit of fear. Instead, you get power from the Lord. You get uh, love for others who are contending against you. You get sound judgment and sober thinking. Timothy, you don't need to muscle your way through this limitation. Instead, invite the Lord into this weakness. And invite him to overcome it in power. And Paul is actually speaking from personal experience here. He's tasted this in his own life. 2 Corinthians 12, he tells us. He's writing about a thorn of the flesh that he described as something that was tormenting him. And I want you to know how the, this passage starts and how it ends. Right? Because at the start, he says, concerning this, I pleaded with the Lord three times to take it away, that it would leave me. Just get this thing away from me. But this is the answer that he got. My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is perfected in weakness. 
Therefore, I will most gladly boast all the more about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may reside in me. So I take pleasure in weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and in difficulties for the sake of Christ. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Do you see the shift by the end? Right, he starts by asking the Lord, take this thing away from me again and again and again. Take this away. And then by the end of the passage, he's now embracing it. He's embracing it for the opportunity it is. It's an opportunity for the Lord's power to be known in his life in a way that it wouldn't be otherwise. And the key idea of 2 Corinthians 12 is this, that God's power is not perfected in my strengths. God's power is not perfected when I'm doing great. His power is perfected in my weaknesses because then I'm finally out of his way. And so what we need to do is rightly identify our limitations, rightly identify our weaknesses, and then invite the Lord and his power and his spirit into those so that even in them, we might bring him fruit and bring him glory. I can assure you at this point, we'd not be wasting our life. And when we get to this point, what, this will also be true, that reliance upon God will become our oxygen. Look at, look at how he picks it up in verse 8. He says, don't be ashamed, and then set halfway through. He says, instead, share in suffering for the gospel, relying on the power of God. I want you to know this, this calling to follow Jesus, to not make him just our Savior, but our Lord, this calling to, to live for his mission, to make disciples who make disciples, to point souls to the hope of eternity, to invest more in the life to come than in this life. This calling is, is on all of us who are in Jesus Christ, and it is really, really, really hard. Let's not downplay it. It's incredibly hard. And so without any effort, you're going to downshift into just living for yourself. Without any trying, you're going to automatically avoid cost and suffering and sacrifice. Without any intentionality, you will become your own God. And without any introspection, you might not even notice. And so it can be intimidating. But in Jesus Christ, it's not impossible Timothy didn't need to be afraid. He didn't need to be distracted. He didn't need to be ashamed. His answer to all of it was a reliance on God. That remaining and abiding that Jesus talks about in John 15 can become our lifeblood and our oxygen. He is what enables us to produce fruit. He is the one who overcomes our weaknesses and limitations. He leads us to a life that's worthy of our calling in his gospel. So everybody in this church, everybody here in the sermon today has been given a single life. And I cannot tell you how much of a gift that is. It's a tremendous gift. I really don't want you to waste it. And so what can we take from this letter and from Paul's encouragement to Timothy and apply to our own lives? Well, there's two, two major ideas that we're going to break down for you. And the first is simply this. is to just stop trying to be God. Now, when people hear that, most of you are like, I haven't been trying to be God of the entire universe. I know that's outside of my power. That's true. Most people don't try that. But what I guarantee you is this. There are plenty of times where you've been trying to be your own God. And what you need to know is what Paul reminded Timothy in 1 Timothy and will remind him again in 2 Timothy. There is a God and you are not him. And I love you, but you need to be so thankful for that because you and I would make a terrible God. First, we cannot save ourselves. Right? Romans chapter 3, verse 23 has that truth that we started with, right? That all of us have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Now, why there's commonality in that, that is not good news. And every single one of us has rebelled against God's perfect design. Every single one of us has tried to step into his place. Every single one of us has broken his commands, and we now owe him a debt, which is why Romans 6 says this, that the wages, the cost of that sin is our death. And not just a physical death here, but an eternal death forever in hell if that sin is not paid for. Which is why I'm so thankful there's a second half of that verse, aren't you? 
The wages of our sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ, our Lord. There's a couple key phrases in there. The first is gift, right? We're going to talk about that. And second is that this is only in Christ Jesus, right? Because only Christ Jesus came and took on our form. Only Christ Jesus lived a life that was sinless. So only Jesus went and paid the price on the cross for our sins and not his. And then only Jesus defeated the grave after that. And so what he offers to us is if we surrender and repent and turn and give our lives to him and trust in his death and resurrection, all of our sins are forgiven and we are given the gift of eternal life in Christ Jesus, which is why Ephesians 2 says this, that you are saved by grace through faith. That's faith in Jesus. And this is not from yourselves. It's God's gift, not from works so that no one can boast. And so what I need you to know is this. If you're here this morning and you've been trying to be your own answer, you think that somehow it's your church attendance, the fact that you're here today has somehow brought you into a better standing with God. You think it's, it's your good works, that the, if it's your belief that there's a God exists, that somehow you and him are gonna strike up a deal on the end because your good's gonna outweigh your bad and somehow these things are gonna get you to heaven, they, they will make you right with God. Uh, what I can tell you is you've already failed. You've already failed. What you need to know is this. It's only in Jesus that you can be saved. It's only through Jesus that you can be saved. It's only by Jesus that you can be saved. Stop trying to be God. Find eternal life in the only place that you can find it through the death and resurrection of his son, Jesus Christ. You cannot save yourself. Secondly, you cannot avoid wasting your life without him. Can't do it. In Matthew 13, Jesus tells a parable of seeds. It's a pretty famous parable, but the, the basic structure is that a farmer goes out in his field and he sows a bunch of seed out and it falls on these four different types of soil. And the seed, Jesus tells us, represents God's word. It represents the message of his kingdom, the gospel. And, and the seed goes out and it falls on these different types of soil. And there's one in particular I want to point out today that I think really stands out in our context and day and age. In Matthew 13, 22, we read this. Now the one sown among the thorns, this is the one who hears the word, but the worries of this age and the deceitfulness of wealth choke the word and it becomes unfruitful. There's nothing wrong with the seed. Just as there's nothing wrong with God's invitation. The problem is us. The problem is our context. The problem is our limitations and temptations. Just as the rich young ruler was distracted by materialism, Peter was distracted by shame, Saul was distracted by religion, the worries of this age, the distractions of this life, the deceitfulness of the desire for the things of this world, all will choke out what God is desiring to do in our lives. And listen to me because this is important. In America in 2022, there are far too many thorns for you to live a fruitful life for Jesus Christ in your own power and by yourself. You cannot do it. You try to be your own God, and I guarantee that you will waste this one life you've been given. But with his Holy Spirit empowering us, with his word transforming us, with his church encouraging us, with his power made perfect in our weaknesses, that is when we can actually fight the good fight. That's when we can step into what he has for us. We cannot save ourselves. We cannot avoid wasting our lives without him. And thirdly, we cannot suffer well without him. Suffering is a guarantee in this life. Trials are going to come our way. And with God's help, we can walk those valleys in ways that honor him. But I don't know if you noticed, T Timothy's calling here is beyond that. Timothy's invited to volunteer and willingly sign up for and step into suffering for the gospel. And Jesus, look at the second half of verse 8 again. 
But Paul writes, instead, share in suffering for the gospel, relying on the power of God. You know, left to ourselves, right, we'll, we'll quickly make every single trial that comes our way, every ounce of suffering, all about us. We'll seek or even demand answers that were never promised. We'll put God and his goodness on trial. We'll discount the possibility that anything that isn't good short-term could be used for good and long-term. But I want you to see here, with God's help, with his power made perfect in our weakness, not only can we suffer well in the moment, but he can produce in us such a burden for lost souls, such a passion for his mission, such a longing to know him more, that we will actually willingly and voluntarily step into suffering for his sake. That we will sign up for costs. I think we'd all agree we have zero chance of doing that if we're trying to be our own God. There is a God, and it is not you. So deepen your reliance on him. And secondly, in this, the encouragement is this, go to him first, not last. You know what the crazy thing about me, about all of us is? That too often, in spite of our weaknesses, in spite of our limitations and sinfulness that we're all fully aware of, we seek answers within ourselves first. Then when a problem comes along the way, we, we try to solve it. We try to figure it out. We're like, no, what, I got this. I'll handle this. And then at the end of it, we're like, God, can you come in and clean up my mess? And the Bible lovingly and correctly advises us against this. Proverbs 3, 5, and 6, trust in the Lord with all your heart. And I went ahead and underlined it for you. And do not rely on your own understanding. In all your ways, know him, and he will make your path straight. It's not that God doesn't appreciate your effort. It's that it's unnecessary. If you actually turn to him first, it would go so much better for you. Trusting the Lord means turning to him first. It doesn't mean trying everything in your own power and then asking him to clean up whatever mess you've made. We need to get in a rhythm where reliance on God, turning to his power and his goodness is our first instinct, not our last. Now I get it, right? This, this idea uh, of this concept of wasting your life seems big and possibly even the language harsh. But to close this time out this morning, I want us to do just a little foreshadowing. We're going we're we're to pan ahead in the letter just a little bit but towards the end of the letter in 2 Timothy 4. And Paul, when we get there, is going to write with a clear conscience. And he's going to mean every word. This, this, this kind of succinct wrapped up. He's going to say this. The time for my departure is near. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. And I have kept the faith. And what is awaiting me is the crown of righteousness from the Lord. And here towards the start of the book, right here towards the start of the letter, and here at the end of our time this morning, the question I want to ask you is this. Could you write the same? Could you say the same? Could you right now, right of your life, I have fought the good fight, I have, kept the, I've, I have finished the race that God marked out for me, I've kept the faith, and, and what is awaiting me is the crown of righteousness that he will give to me. Or if you're here and you're like, you know what, I'm kind of assuming he's going to give me some more decades here, even though none of us are guaranteed that. What I'd ask is this. Does your current projection or trend put you on a path that you could say the same at the end of your life? That you could honestly, with a clear conscience, say, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race that he marked out for me. I have lived this life for him, and I've kept the faith. If you can't, the invitation is simple. Stop trying to be God. Find life in Jesus Christ. And then pour out your life for him, reliant on his power to overcome your weaknesses and live for his mission. I would love nothing more than for all of us to be able to put that epitaph at the end of our lives, that we have fought the fight, we have, kept, we have finished the race, and we've kept the faith. Let's pray.
Father, I thank you for the opportunity to, to, to study your word and to hear from, uh, from a man who lived his life for you, who endured suffering for you, endured cost and sacrifice for you, and who could clearly, with a good conscience, say, I have fought the good fight. I finished the race that my Lord asked me to run, and I've kept the faith. And so, Lord, I wonder how many of us in this room could say that we, that we, could, we could write the same thing about our own lives or that we're on that path and trajectory. And Lord, I just pray that for any of us who aren't, that we would, that we would understand that the grace found to in Jesus Christ offers us fresh starts every single day. That there's no better time than now to get on that path. There's no better time than now to enter into that trajectory. There's no better time than now to surrender the control of our lives completely and fully to you. And so Lord, I pray for any who's never trusted in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of their sins and the salvation of the soul, that today would be their day of salvation, that right now, where they're sitting in their seats, they would just surrender their lives to you and that you would save them. And then, God, for the rest of us, would we, would we invite your introspection this morning? Would we look for any areas or circumstances in our lives that we are trying to solve within our own power, that we're trying to solve within our own capabilities, trying to solve within our own wisdom, and honestly, probably just making more of a mess of it? Lord, would you give us the wisdom to turn that over to you this morning, to invite your power to be made perfect in our weakness. God, would you make uh, reliance on you be the oxygen for FBN? Would you make us be a church that, that, that is not bound by our limitations and weaknesses, but instead invites you into them? And would you get the glory from all this? And we ask this in Jesus' powerful name. Amen. Before these guys lead us in one final psalm, we're gonna give you a couple minutes just to pray between you and the Lord and wrestle with some things he might be putting on your heart this morning. There's some guidance on the screens if you need it, but this is just your time uh, to interact with him, to communicate with him, to pray with him, and uh, please, please do not miss this opportunity.